Philippians chapter 2, and today we are in verse 19, and we're going to the end of the chapter. That's the plan anyway. We'll see how the, how the clock goes. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. And that's where we end chapter 2. Now, just to give you the background, because this seems like a, you know, just pointless, not pointless, but, you know, one of those passages that just gives you a wee bit of information and then you just blast on past it. But it's good. Stay tuned. The Philippians have sent an offering to Paul with Epaphroditus. If you look at chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. So one of the reasons that Paul writes the letter is to thank them for blessing him with a financial gift while he was in prison. Because if you were in prison in Rome, you didn't get snacks and you didn't get meals and you didn't get anything. You didn't eat unless some of your friends came to the prison and provided food for you and said to the guards, give that to Paul. Otherwise, you're staying hungry. So he has received this gift that has supplied his needs while he's in prison. Now, the journey from Philippi to Rome is about 800 miles. And some of it is by foot and some of it is on the sea. And it probably took six to eight weeks to make this journey. So Epaphroditus has got the cash from Philippi and made this long journey to Rome. And on the way, he gets sick, really sick. And the Philippians don't actually know whether he makes it or not. And Paul wants to get a message to them to let them know that he did make it. They, they have heard that he got sick, but they don't know anything else about that. And maybe even some of them back in Philippi might have been speculating, here, this guy got a bag of cash and he was sent on his way and we haven't heard from him for a long time. I think he's legged it with the money and he's away having a good time. So Paul wants to straighten it all out and make very clear, I've received the gift. 
Epaphroditus is well, although he was very, very ill, and he's coming back to you again. There was no, no quick way of communication. No speedy, just hit a button and get a message sent. It was a long and laborious process. And Paul's plan is, he's in prison. Timothy is with him. Timothy is not in prison, but Timothy is looking after Paul. Epaphroditus has come with this gift. And what Paul is planning to do, and you read in this passage, is he's going to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi to let them know how things are going, to bring the letter, to show them that he's, he's okay himself. And then at a later stage, when the trial is over, Paul is going to send Timothy back to Philippi to bring the news of the outcome of the trial. So that, that's where Paul's at. Timothy, stand with me. I want Timothy. I need Timothy. Paphroditus, thanks for coming, buddy. Appreciate your gift. You're a good lad. And I'm going to send you back to bring a message to the Philippians. And there, <clears throat> there are places in Paul and there are places in my Bible where I have to admit, I sometimes hit the accelerator. And uh, I tend to speed up the reading a little bit um, I have to admit that when I'm reading Leviticus, it's terrifying at the speed at which I will, will skate over things in, uh, in Leviticus. And in Paul, whenever you get to these parts in Paul's letters where he's, he's maybe giving a list of names, he's maybe bringing some greetings and saying, say hi to this person and say hi to that person and give that person a holy kiss or whatever. Um, I, I, I tend to hit the, the Bible accelerator and just blast on through at high speed and miss stuff. But this is a passage where we realize that when we do slow down and listen, that what Paul is doing has got an awful lot to do with what has gone before in Philippians. Remember, we've got to read the whole letter as a whole. We've got to read our passage in context. Context is king. Got to look at what's going on around the passage that we're reading. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, you'll see the first command in the letter and possibly one of the most important verses in the letter where Paul says to them, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, live out your citizenship in the gospel. Live in Philippi as citizens of heaven. And he then elaborates in the first half of chapter 2 about what that looks like. And, and how to do that. And because this is a letter of moral exhortation, sorry for the big word, but it, there are two types of letter merged together here. And I told you this in the introduction way back, I don't know how many months ago. But Paul, Paul writes a letter of friendship, and it's also a letter of moral exhortation, which basically means it's a letter giving people some guidance about how they should live. And in those letters of moral exhortation in the ancient world, one of the things that you did was you provided examples of, of how a person should live. And what Paul has done in this letter is, in chapter 1, if you run your eye over it, from verses 12 to 26, he talks about himself a little bit. And, and if you remember back possibly to that message um, he is so gospel-focused, it is just outrageous. In everything, in prison, in people who are preaching to try to do him harm, as bizarre as that sounds, in facing death, in summing up life, everything is about Jesus and the gospel. So Paul uses himself as an example. And then in chapter 2, 
verses 6 to 11, he holds up Jesus as the ultimate example. Last week, in chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, he holds up Israel as a negative example. So he says, you know, here's, here's me, and here's Jesus, the ultimate example. Here's Israel grumbling and moaning about their leaders in the desert and about the food and about the conditions. Don't imitate them. Be, be different from that. And now in this passage, he's going to hold up two more examples, which are both positive examples. After Israel, we're now going to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. So this letter is not just a letter that Paul is sending with Epaphroditus to go back to Philippi and hand over and say, listen, folks, I'm, I'm a good guy. You have to welcome me back. It's not just a letter of commendation. Epaphroditus and Timothy are being held up as examples in the whole big picture of the letter that Paul is writing, telling people how they should live. It's one thing to tell people, live as citizens of the gospel. And it's another thing, as John Mark Comer says, to put flesh and blood on your theology. In other words, to say, do you see Timothy? Live like him. Do you see Epaphroditus? Live like him. And as we journey through this passage and pick out a few things about these two lads, I want to have two questions in your mind the whole time. The first one, who could you say these things about? The things that Paul says about Timothy and about Epaphroditus, who could you say them about? And I think much more importantly, and a question I'm going to ask you over and over again is, could these things be said of me? As in you and me, applying it to myself. Could these things be said of me? Remember throughout, Paul is holding them up as examples of what it means to be citizens of the gospel. As examples of what it means to have the mind of Christ. And ask yourself over and over again, could this be said of me? So Timothy is first. In verses 19 to 24, I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you soon that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. Paul doesn't just start a project and then disappear. He plants his churches and he has this ongoing affectionate relationship with the people in those communities of faith. He wants to hear how they're doing. It will cheer him. It will encourage him to find out how they're progressing in their faith, how they're moving on in following Jesus, how they are growing in community together. He wants to know. He wants to be encouraged by it. But why would he send Timothy? Of all the people that Paul has in his sort of in his area and his connections and his sphere of influence, the, the guys who are knocking about Rome as Christians, why does he want to send Timothy to them in particular? Paul met Timothy in Lystra in Acts chapter 16. A few chapters before that, Paul goes to Lystra, plants a church, comes back and finds a disciple there called Timothy. And Paul then effectively adopts Timothy as a spiritual son. Timothy travels with Paul, learns from Paul. He is Paul's protege, he has two letters written to him by Paul, and uh, he just becomes basically Paul's right-hand man in the gospel and in mission. And look what Paul says about him. Now, you hold that question, and I'll hold it too. Could this be said about me? 
Look at verse 20. Paul writes of Timothy, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's different. It is extraordinary the way Paul commends this guy. Could this be said about you? Could this be said about me? He genuine, he takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He's not just asking how you're doing because that's the right thing to do. He's not just meeting you and finding out how things are because that's what a Christian should do or what a pastor should do. It's not just him going through the rituals. It's authentic. It's real. Timothy has a genuine interest in your welfare. He's concerned about it. He's not just concerned about his own agenda. Timothy is not out to promote Timothy International Ministries. Timothy is intensely, genuinely interested in your welfare. And when, he, when Paul says in verse 21, everyone looks out to his own interests, that's exaggeration. That's hyperbolic to make a point. He may be referring to the Christians in Rome, if that's where he is, in chapter 1, verse 17, do you remember those weirdos who, who in verse 17 of chapter 1 were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition? Not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Until you've preached through a letter or taught through it or walked through it really slowly, you don't see the connection between this and Timothy. These guys are preaching out of selfish ambition. They are trying to cause trouble for Paul, and it is not sincere. And then Paul says, look at Timothy. He takes a genuine interest in you. Everyone else looking to their own interests, not Timothy. Timothy is looking to the interests of the Lord Jesus. Guys like Timothy and gals like Timothy. Is there a female version of Timothy? I don't know. But anyway, girls like Timothy, guys like Timothy, they are a rare breed. A rare breed for Paul as he writes this letter and a rare breed in the world today because our world is crawling with narcissists who are only interested in their own agenda, in their own self-promotion and self-interest and we need people like Timothy who are not just interested in their own ambition, their own agenda, who don't run around with a t-shirt on saying it's all about me but they genuinely put others first. In fact, Timothy had to be pushed to the front by Paul. I remember watching a concert one time and there was a, a musician in the band who was, who was doing a solo and he was a sort of a nervous kind of guy. He was very talented, but he was standing at the back of the stage and the singer went round behind him and literally just put his two hands on his back and pushed him to the front of the stage. Now, Paul has to do that with Timothy. Paul has to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, Timothy, the gift that God's given you, fan it into flame. Not so the crowds will watch and applaud you, but take your gift and move it forward. Take it and use it. Don't hide in the shadows, Timothy. Timothy was a guy who did not push himself forward. He was a guy who did not dominate the limelight. He looked to the concerns of others first. He made his decisions based on others. What's the best thing here for the church? 
What's the best thing for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Not, what, not what's the best thing for me. There is an epidemic of selfishness in the Western church where people just wander from place to place. What's the best thing for me? Rather than what is the best thing for this community of faith that I am part of? That was the Timothy mindset. And I want you to notice as well, as we, as we work through, notice the, the, the language that Paul uses that reminds us of what we've seen in earlier parts of the letter. Look at, look at 2.20. He takes, no, no, start at 2.20. I have no one else like him. In Greek, what that actually says is, I have no one else who is like-minded. I have no one else who is like-minded. Some of the older translations get that. Verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul begs the Philippians, make my joy complete by being like-minded. It's a letter of moral exhortation. It's a letter of encouraging people to live a certain way. Part of that style of letter is to present examples. Timothy's an example. Do you know what I mean, church, when I say be like-minded? Look at Timothy. Look at him. I have no one else like-minded like him. And also that, that whole theme of the mind runs through the letter. It's a beautiful theme where it is telling us to change how we think. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul says, Your attitude, but again it's the word mind, mindset, your way of thinking, says your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then again, he goes to Timothy and says, look at Timothy. Timothy's got it, folks. He's young and he's quiet and he likes to sort of hide in the shadows a wee bit. And sometimes I have to encourage him to step up and use his gift. But look at him. He's got the mind of Christ. He's like-minded. He lives in the way that I am calling you to live. I'm not asking you to do something impossible. I'm not asking you to do something for which Jesus is the only example, even though he's the ultimate example. I'm asking you to do something that Timothy does as well. Look at Timothy. And, and also, not only this parallel language in terms of him being like-minded, but verse 21 says, everyone looks out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy's not like that. Verse 4, go back to that. Paul says, each of you should look not to your own interests. Remember the word only that's in my NIV shouldn't be there. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And once again, Paul said, Timothy's got it, folks. Timothy's got it. He is the opposite of that narcissistic, me first, my agenda, everything's got to be done my way, my way or the highway. He is the absolute opposite of that. He's this beautiful spirit, the mind of Christ. And, and Paul says, live like this. Could that be said of me? Could verse 20 be said of me? Or is the first part of verse 21 a bit more like me, that I look out for my own interests and not those of Jesus Christ? And in verse 22, we read that Timothy has proved himself. This sort of character that Timothy has that we've just read about in the last verse, or couple of verses, this doesn't come cheap. This is not a quick download or a bolt-on or an update. This is something 
that is developed. The word that Paul uses here for proved in verse 22, Timothy has proved himself. In Greek, it is the word doikima, doikime. And what it actually means is it's character that has been developed. This proving process is the development of character through suffering. That's the context that Paul uses the word in. If you listen to me in Romans 5 or go to Romans 5 if you're, if you're fast enough with the fingers. Romans 5 verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Doikime. That's our word. Proven character. But it is brought about by suffering, by persevering in suffering. And the outcome on the other side of it is hope. Okay? And Timothy is a guy who has proved himself in the school of hard knocks. He has been blown around and buffeted and has stood firm. And Paul says he's proven. He's not just somebody with a bit of potential. He's not somebody with an impressive skill set, a crowd pleaser, an influencer, whatever. He is proven. He has already been through that school of hard knocks and it has developed character in him. And I am holding him up as an example. Could that be said of me? Has suffering and challenge produced character or has it produced bitterness? What has the outcome been? For Timothy, it was character. He was proved. And he's an example of how to live out the gospel. Paul says, here's a guy with character. Here's a guy that has proved himself. Here's a guy that lives in a way that promotes unity within the church. He's like-minded. He will bring unity. He will develop unity. He won't destroy it. He won't cause division. He will bring unity in the church. Here's a guy with a mind of Christ. And one of the things that Paul does in this passage for Timothy and for Epaphroditus is he uses metaphors. Timothy gets one, Epaphroditus gets five. But Timothy's metaphor is he has proved himself because as a son with his father. That's the metaphor for Timothy. He, is, he has acted like a son. Now that just doesn't just mean that there's a strong bond between Paul and Timothy, like a father and son that they enjoy having a kickabout in the back garden now and again. It's more than that. In the ancient world, a son followed his father in the family business. Son learned from his dad, whether he was a farmer or a carpenter or whatever he did, the son learned the trade by working side by side, shoulder to shoulder with his dad, copying his dad, imitating his dad, learning from his dad. And when Paul says that Timothy's like a son to me, that's what he means. He means, I've apprenticed Timothy. I have mentored Timothy. I have discipled Timothy. And this is something that's a big deal for Paul. He says in, in his second letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy to do the same thing. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. 
says, Timothy, what I've taught you, what I've deposited in you when I've mentored and apprenticed you, you take that now and you deposit that in someone else. That needs to happen more in the church. There's too many who will receive from one person and receive and receive and receive, but they do not then take what they have received and overflow into the next generation. And discipleship so frequently stops at one generation where somebody follows and learns but are not poked and pushed and promoted into the point where they are then passing that on to others. Paul is a big discipleship fanatic. And Timothy is Paul's disciple. He also writes in in Titus about the older women in the church teaching the younger women. He is, he is, there's a culture in the ancient world and in many places in the world today where older people are respected. And it does not happen in Western society the way that it should. We have the idolatry of youth. We are obsessed with everything that is young and everything that is beautiful. And we do not respect our elders and learn from them the way we should. You look at at who it is that's dominating the, the internet and the news and the TV. It is influencers. It is the people who are young and who are beautiful and who are good at selling face cream, but are useless at telling people, how to, how to walk through marriage for decades, how to lead a family, how to work hard and honor God in your work, how to, I don't know, how to live in the joy of the Lord year after year, how to suffer well. These young influencers won't teach us any of that. Our elders will teach us that. And Paul says to Timothy, or Paul models that with Timothy as a father and a son. So I say to you, if you are older in the faith, which doesn't require being old, but if you're older in the faith, where's your Timothy? Who are you pouring into? Who are you investing in? Or have you retired? And if you're young in your faith, who's your Paul? Who have you gone to and said, listen, I want you to be my Paul? I like the way you pray. I like the way you live. I like the way you lead in your home, in your family. I like the way you work. I like the way you talk about the scriptures. I like the way you talk about Jesus. I want you to be my Paul. As long as we're obsessed with youth, we won't do that. And whenever the church is being over, sort of overtaken by very, very young leaders, we find ourselves in a problem where these guys haven't been proved the way Timothy's been proved. They haven't been proved. And it's hard to follow people that haven't been proved. We need to get rid of this idolatry of youth and start receiving mentorship from those who have been on the road a bit longer. And we need to get rid of the arrogance that prevents us from submitting in discipleship. Arrogance will just put a brick wall in front of you on your journey of discipleship and becoming like Jesus. There has to be an acknowledgement. I need a Paul. I need someone to apprentice me. Find your Paul if you're a Timothy. Find your Timothy if you're a Paul. And walk with them. There's a great little app that some in the church are using called Walk With Me that just guides these 
discipleship conversations and discussions and provides fuel to, to discuss. Use it. It's no wonder that Paul wants Timothy with him. You look at how Paul has spoken about Timothy here. It's no slur on Epaphroditus, but Epaphroditus, you can take the letter this time, mate. I need Timothy. I'm in prison, facing trial, possibly facing death. I need Timothy. And I love that as well about Paul, that Paul is not so arrogant and aloof that he thinks he's got it all sorted. I'll be fine on my own. I'm grand. He's like, no, Timothy, I need you. I need you. It's not just that you need me so that I can mentor you and apprentice you. I need you at my side to encourage me. It's a beautiful thing. So on to Epaphroditus, who's got the most awful name. I don't know what his mother was thinking, but his name sounds like a disease. You know, Epaphroditus. Can you get a cream for Epaphroditus? Did he have a twin brother called Dermatitis? I don't know. He is not named after a disease. He is actually named after a goddess called Aphrodite. And Aphrodite is a Greek goddess, a fertility goddess. And also she was popular among gamblers. So if a gambler was about to roll the dice and take a risk, he would, as he's shaking the dice in his hand and about to release them, he would pray to Aphrodite for good luck as he rolls the dice. People who like to take risks prayed to Aphrodite. That is important, or it will be in a few minutes. And it's a very different situation for Epaphroditus as it was for Tim. I wish I could think of a short name for Epaphroditus, but I can't. I'm just going to have to keep saying it. It's a very different situation for him than it was for Timothy because he was from Philippi. Epaphroditus belonged in Philippi. He was one of them. He'd been chosen by them to bring the gift to Paul Uh, So they knew him. But yet still, Paul says a lot of really good stuff about Epaphroditus. So there is a chance that Paul is concerned that they're going to think bad of Epaphroditus and not welcome him back because they might think he's done a runner with the money. So Paul is really emphatic about commending Epaphroditus to them, even though they already know him. And Paul does that using five metaphors. Very, very quick run through them. In verse 25, he says, Epaphroditus is my brother. This is Paul's favorite word for Christians. Adelphoi in Greek. Brothers, sisters, the family of God. That's Paul's vision for what the church should be. And as I asked the questions with Timothy, could that be said of me? Here again, could it be said of me? Am I a brother in the church? Because brothers don't walk away. Brothers don't quit. Sisters don't quit. You don't just get up and and wander off from your family someday when you're about 16 and say, I'm fed up with you, I'm, I'm quitting. No, you stick together. Family. And in the church, are we brothers and are we sisters who stick together? Or are we just loose acquaintances who blow in and out like the breeze? Epaphroditus is a brother. Could that be said of me? He is a co-worker or a fellow worker in verse 25. A brother and a fellow worker. In Greek, this is the word synergos, from which we get synergy. When, when two or several things are brought together to work and achieve something that they could not do separately. Synergy. And Paul says of Epaphroditus, he's my synergy. He is my fellow worker. Work. 
The gospel is work. It is not an easy path to choose. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It's not easy. Works do not earn our salvation. Works do not earn extra favor with God. But the gospel is frequently likened to work. Mission is work. Church leadership is work. Ministry within the church, regardless of whether that is what people call professional ministry, which is a horrible term, or, or whether it is just up normal blokes like Epaphroditus doing their thing, it is hard work. It takes energy. It takes time. It leaves you tired, sometimes leaves you physically tired, frequently leaves you emotionally exhausted. It is work. Epaphroditus is a worker. And we need workers in the church. We need to take the 80-20 rule that says that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And we need to blow it out of the place completely. That No church can survive on the 80-20 rule. Everyone needs to work. And Epaphroditus was a fellow worker in the gospel with Paul. Could that be said of me? Am I a worker? Do I bring work ethic to ministry. Work ethic, commitment, effort, that you fall into bed tired, but you know you've done something good. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about burnout and workaholism. I'm not talking about people who just don't know when to stop, who neglect their important relationships in order to do the gospel, who neglect their family, who burn themselves out. That is not a badge of honor in any way, shape, or form. But bring to the gospel and to the kingdom a work ethic, because this is not a cruise ship. This is a battleship. And Paul goes on to say, not only is he a fellow worker, but he's a fellow soldier. Because the gospel and the kingdom is not only hard work, it's war. It is war. And Paul says our war in in Ephesians 6 is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's worse than flesh and blood, by the way. It is war. And Paul says Epaphroditus is a warrior. He's a soldier. He is my fellow soldier. He knows how to fight. And one of the things that I push again and again and again in any context that I'm in where I have any influence over those who are planting churches or seeking to plant churches is you need to know that the moment you step out, you're stepping onto a spiritual battlefield. You are putting yourself on the front line and on the other side of the battlefield is Satan, and these spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And you will get pummeled if you are not aware of what you are stepping into. Epaphroditus is a soldier. You fight in prayer. One of the things, there are a lot of things that I've missed over lockdown. But one of the things that I've really missed, although I'm thankful for Zoom and for praying on Zoom, there is nothing like being in the same room as people crying out to God in prayer. We'll be doing that really soon. It's that totally different dynamic. And it's something that I want to throw myself and throw this church back into with tremendous vigor. 
warfare in prayer, crying out to God as fellow soldiers. Are we doing that? Paphroditus is a fellow soldier. Am I a fellow soldier? Do I war in prayer for other people? Could that be said of me? Could it be said of you? He's also a messenger in verse 25 still. He's a messenger. Greek word, apostolos. It means apostle, sent one, missionary. He is sent into the context that he's in. Cannot be said of me. Do I carry something into the context that God sends me into? Do I bring something? Do you bring something? Are you an apostle, a messenger, a missionary into your workplace, your family, whatever, your sphere of influence? Could that be said of me? And also in, at the end of verse 25 then, he's sent to take care of Paul's needs. That the word there that's used is, is the same word for, for minister or ministry. Servant, serving Paul's needs, caring for him. Could that be said of me? Do I care for others? Do I care for them and minister to their needs? And Paul goes on in the next couple of verses to talk about Epaphroditus' illness, which was not a disease that required cream from the chemist, but had him on the verge of death. Paul wants the Philippians to know this was real. It was serious. In the ancient world, without any medicine, if you got this sick, it was unlikely you were going to come back. And so Paul says in verse 27 that God had mercy on him. The, the area of healing and sickness can be a divisive one within the church. As far as I'm concerned, Scripture instructs us to pray for the sick. Scripture never, ever, anywhere guarantees that all people who are prayed for will be healed. It does not say that. And if you take Isaiah 53 and twist it out of context and make it say that, you need to go back and actually listen a lot more carefully to the Hebrew poetry of Isaiah. Scripture does not guarantee that people will be healed. Some people are and some people are not. What Scripture guarantees is that the God of all comfort will be present with those who suffer. That's the guarantee. So we pray for the sick. We hand them into God's hands and we ask for his healing and his mercy on them. And we leave that with him, knowing that his presence with them is guaranteed. And with us as we suffer as well. Paul finishes the one command in this passage in verses 29 and 30 are two commands, I guess, that are rolled into one. Welcome him. Whenever Epaphroditus gets back to you, Philippians, welcome him. And here's, here's a key thing. Honor him. Honor him. There's a lack of honor, I think, within the church for those who are examples. Epaphroditus is an example. Honor him. He's a guy who nearly died bringing this gift to Paul on behalf of the church. Paul says, you better honor him for that, for what he has done. You better honor him. In fact, Paul says in verse 30, and it's a play on his name, Epaphroditus, named after Aphrodite, the, the goddess that the gamblers would pray to as they rolled the dice and took a risk. Paul says, 
He risked his life for the gospel. Risked his life to bring a gift to me that you couldn't bring to me. Honor him. It's amazing as we close how Paul can go in a few sentences from verses 6 to 11 where he has arguably the highest Christology in the New Testament. This epic vision of Jesus as the one who has received the name Lord. Kyrios. He can go from that to writing about one guy called Epaphroditus who was ill and he's going back to his church and Paul's concerned that his church welcome him back and honor him. Paul does not get so lost in the theology of his mind that he forgets his pastoral heart of loving and looking after individual people. It's one thing to say live as citizens of the gospel. It's another thing to put flesh and blood on your theology and say live like this. Who can we say this of? And can it be said of you? Live like Timothy. Live like Epaphroditus. You want to know what it looks like to have the mind of Jesus? Live like him. Live like her. You want to learn how to pray? Listen to her pray. Spend time with her in prayer and pray like her. You want to learn how to dig into the scriptures? Listen to him as he opens the scriptures. Sit with him and talk about the scriptures with him. You want to learn how to love and lead in a, in a family? Go talk to him. Go spend time with that guy because he's done it and done it well. We need examples in the church. We need sons and we need fathers and mothers and daughters. We need brothers, fellow workers, fellow soldiers, messengers and ministers. Could these things be said of me? And to push it even closer and roar and deeper into our hearts, Paul in one of his other letters tells people to imitate him. If someone came and said to me, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Could I say, watch me? Because Paul could. And he could say it about Timothy and Epaphroditus. But could I say it? Could you say it? Or would we start making excuses and say, ah, oh, well, you know what? I don't always get everything right. But here's a good book you could read. Because <laughs> that's not New Testament discipleship. New Testament discipleship is once you've been on the road a while and somebody wants to know what it's like, that you say to them, when you come in close with me and watch me, and I'll show you what it's like to have the mind of Christ. I'll show you what it's like to put others' interests ahead of your own and live out the citizenship that we have as God's people. So a passage that starts off looking like it's just a few travel plans actually has some rich pertinent nuggets for us. Thanks for listening. Bless you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon, one way or another. Bye.